introduction to Habakkuk. Um, I'm walking up the middle here because uh, he was a man like us. And he looked around the world like we look around the world. He was a godly man. Uh, He understood God as the Lord. You know that capital letter word in the Bible? L-O-R-D in capitals, which represented Yahweh. I am that I am. Almighty God, who brooks no rivals. God of the heaven and the earth, the God of creation. He understood that God is a righteous God, and he himself was a righteous man. Um, If he wasn't a righteous man, we wouldn't have the prophecy which has been written down. Uh, Because it was written down because he was full of questions and his heart was breaking. And his heart was breaking because of what he saw as unrighteousness. He had a high view of God because he says, Lord, you are a purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And this gave him a serious problem. Because life just ain't fair, is it? And as he looked around at the unfairness and the rottenness of the life which was around him, God didn't seem to make it any easier for him. You'd expect a God who is almighty, I am that I am, who is the righteous and holy God, who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, to stamp stuff out and do something about it and put things right and speak to people and make them tremble in their shoes so that at least his own people would begin to worship him again. But he didn't. He's very much like the man which John Lyons pointed me to the other week in Psalm 73, who saw the wicked prospering and the poor and the righteous poor. And he just could not understand how God could allow this. And he's quite uptight about it. And he told God he was. And in actual fact, Habakkuk, in his own way, got quite uptight about it too. Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or I cry out violence and you don't save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? There's destruction and violence before me. There's strife. There's contention. The law is paralyzed. Justice never works. In fact, the wicked surround the righteous so that justice just goes perverted. Now, he lived about 90 to 100 years after these other guys, prophets that we've been looking at, after Hosea, for instance. And long time ago, in Habakkuk's lifetime, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken into captivity, and just Judah. But Judah was under constant pressure from the, from the superpower of the north, the Assyrians. And in fact, since Hosea and Amos, Judah had had a couple of really wicked kings. Manasseh was one of them, and uh, 
the guy who followed him was the other one. <laughs> Someone will look it up and shout it out to me in a minute. They've been really wicked kings, and, and the stuff that they'd introduced in terms of cultic worship and social practice was hideous. It was horrible. They even introduced some sacrifice of, of children. So the whole nation had become perverted by this. But then there had followed a king, Josiah, a good king, and there were kind of reform and reformation went on under him. Um, but so much damage had been done by the previous kings and, and the practices and, uh, and the culture that they'd introduced that although the Josiah was a good man, these practices still continued on around and about the high places in the hills and, the, uh, and, and people still couldn't forget the old idols. And so when Habakkuk is looking out amongst his own peers, he sees these things happening. And of course, where, you, where a people put themselves apart from God, injustices and wickedness and all kinds of things begin to creep in because the rule of God is no longer watching over it, no longer watching over their minds and their consciences. So, in fact, he has got this big complaint. Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you save? Why don't you say something, God? It ain't fair. I don't like it. I want to give a modern illustration of this. We have a film clip. If you want to see it for yourself, because uh, this is just a preview clip, you can Google Pathé News, National Day of Prayer, 1940, and you will come up with this clip. The Empire responds to the King's call. And at Westminster Abbey, heart of the Empire, the statesmen, the soldiers, the ambassadors, and hundreds of ordinary men and women join the mighty congregation. Her Majesty Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands arrives a few moments before their majesties. No one here today could foresee the grave news that has come from Belgium. All the more, it is well for us to show the world that we still believe in divine guidance, in the laws of Christianity. May we find inspiration and faith from this solemn day. Well, isn't that amazing? We still believe in the laws of Christianity. We still believe in God's guidance. May we take inspiration and hope from this day. There was um, King George VI in 1940 called for a day, a national day of prayer. It was a time when... Uh, the British troops were being pushed back, you remember, towards Dunkirk, and the, the Germans were, were nearing them and surrounding them, had this grand sort of semicircle around them. And, uh, in fact, their situation was, was so bad, the German high command was able to announce the British army is encircled, our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. Now, Churchill said that he thought the whole route and core and brain of the British army seemed about to perish on the field or be led into captivity. But the previous Sunday, May the 26th, at the request of King George VI, there had been observed a National Day of Prayer. 
In a stirring broadcast, the king called for the people of Britain as Josiah had brought about reforms in his day. The king called the people of Britain and the empire to commit their cause to God and the whole nation was a prayer. Now here are some things which have been forgotten over the, over the years. Three miracles happened. Hitler stopped his general advance. Why? A storm of extraordinary fury grounded the Luftwaffe on May the 28th, so they weren't able to pound the British troops cooped up on the coast. And at the same time, an extraordinary great calm settled over the English Channel, which enabled those vast flotillas of boats, large and small, to bring most of the troops back safely. God answered prayer in an extraordinary way. Later on that year, the king called for another day of prayer because troubles in the skies were getting serious and uh, we were in serious and it looked, we were very likely to be invaded. But the day after that second day of prayer, which was in September 1940, Hitler, for some reason or another, completely abandoned his plans to invade Britain. Now, you see, Habakkuk believed in this God. The God who made the heavens and the earth. The God who is the Lord of all the nations. Who reaches far down and things happen. And we've experienced that in our recent history. I was born four years later. That's got nothing to do with it. But, <laughs> but that's... So it was 72 years ago, that makes it, I think. Yes. But although God has worked in our nation, as Josiah did uh, for Judah, um, I haven't noticed, I've tried Googling it, I haven't found over the years any reference to a National Day of Thanksgiving to God as a result of those remarkable deliverances and answers to prayer. If it happened, please correct me, but I can't find it. And in actual fact, the dissolution of, of particularly spiritual life, which had been taking place since the First World War, continued after the Second World War, to the point where, as a nation, we no longer call on God. In actual fact, we mock him in our... Our, com our comedians, our, our, our philosophers. Uh, he just doesn't get a look in, except as a good joke. Um, and if you look around our society, so in my years, when I was a kid, things were not perfect. But there was much more stable government in our country. There were much more stable families in our country. There was much less crime, so far as I'm aware, in our country. There were no drug barons, so far as I'm aware, in our country. Uh, the young people were still respectful of their parents and elders, as I remember. Schooling was a lot more disciplined, as I remember. What I'm saying is that although God did such extraordinary things, like Habakkuk, I want to say, Lord, look at all this stuff that's happening. Why on earth don't you do something? 
Perhaps some of you have got that complaint. Lord, we've been crying out to you, but why don't you do something? If you want to take up Habakkuk in, in, a, in one of your small groups, there's a really good little book, From Fear to Faith, written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, 1970. So it's a bit dated, and in the days when communism was all-powerful, and you could see no end to it, um, is a very good piece of exegesis and pastoral teaching, if you want to follow that up. But in 1970, he's writing, we have been praying for revival for 30 or 40 years, and we do not see it. The church has declined phenomenally since then, just as the society around us, although we don't notice it because we live in it and it's just our daily life, has actually become less moral, less caring in many places. So now people have been praying not for 30 or 40 years, but another 40 years. Is that two or three biblical generations? So what on earth are you doing, God? Well, to his astonishment, Habakkuk received an answer. It was as though God had lifted him up to see further. So I'm going to go up a bit higher. Can we have the map, please? The superpower that had been the superpower for generations was Assyria, to the north of his, to, to the north of Judah, far north. But its its supremacy was waning. It was in serious decline, the decline and fall of the Assyrian Empire, and uh, there was a Babylonian Empire uh, which was much smaller but ruthless, and was about to invade and take over. It was a short-lived empire. But it was ruthless. And in answer to Habakkuk's prayer, look at what's happening around Judah, Lord. Why aren't you doing something? God, as it were, sort of lifts him up and turns him to see sort of to the far northeast. The rise of this kingdom which hasn't yet risen. It's still just in the future. And God says, look among the nations and see You wonder and be astounded because um, I'm doing a work in your day you just wouldn't believe. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're a bitter and hasty nation. They march through the breadth of earth and they seize dwellings not their own. But I'm raising them up. I know they're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They're proud, they're an arrogant nation. Horses swifter than leopards, fierce as wolves. They fly like an eagle. They come for violence. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and laugh at rulers. And they, they just mock cities, setting up siege works against them, conquering them, and then passing on like the wind. 
They're guilty men. And their own might is their God. And Habakkuk is now absolutely gutted. Because he sees wickedness in his own land, but not like the Babylonian idolatrous wickedness. And now he's got another complaint. He just doesn't understand. He has heard God somehow. But God, aren't you from everlasting, Lord my God? The Holy One? And then he remembers God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We won't die. But I can see, Lord, that you've ordained these Babylonians for a judgment. That you're our rock, but you've established them for a reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and can't look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows us up? When the wicked swallow up men more righteous than them? It's like you're making mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that don't have a ruler. Because these Babylonians bring them up with a hook and drag them out with his net and gathers them in his trawl and then rejoices and is glad. So the Babylonian sacrifices to his net makes his offerings to his dragnet because by them he lives in luxury. Is he to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He can see that his own people have failed God and discipline is needed. God has shown him that the discipline is going to come from this wicked new superpower. And it's going to be hard, painful, scourging. How can God do that? So he says, I would take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I feel that I want to do the same, but I'm not as righteous as Habakkuk. I have watched for 40 years since I've been a Christian. I have watched to see what God will do in our land. At times, I have been furious. At times, I've been depressed. I'm speaking about me. At times... I've lost interest and just given up. At times I've backslidden myself because I can't see the point of Almighty God and He's not doing it. He's not answering our prayers. I can't see that I've looked to the far northeast and that God has shown me anything that's going to come upon our nation. But I think I see something which has come upon us. And it's for you to judge.
I think I see the Western world ensnared. And it's not by a people group, it's by a philosophical mindset. It's called mammon. So why some of you, or most of you, perhaps, are so worn out? Because it's the economy that rules us, you see. In fact, it rules our politicians. And the gods that have ensnared us in this country and across Europe, their pantheon is housed, it seems to me at least, in the global empires of the banks. And our prophets or priests are the economists and our saviours are the money resource people. Money's not sinful. Don't get me wrong. The love of money is the idolatrous thing. And I find us ensnared by this. So that you read the news, listen to the news in the evening and it almost invariably begins with finances. Not always. But even when they're talking about destruction in America, it comes down to 50 billion pounds worth of repairs. And Wall Street was closed for two days. Oh no, how terrible. That is a disaster. And the news always finishes with the, the share prices, which I never understand, or whatever it is, you know, the, I never understand them. But we always finish with that. Why do we start and finish with this stuff? Why is it that it rules the hearts and minds of our politicians? Because we've been ensnared by it. And it comes out of greed, which is covetousness, which is, which is national interest, which is personal, national profit. And I see the church ensnared by it too, to tell the truth. Not everywhere and not everyone. But why is it that Jesus said, don't take a purse with you? And in so many places, the church can't act without money. Why is it we've got such good news of a saviour who actually touches people and heals them and touches souls and ransoms them, who cleanses people from, from sin and, and evil conscience, who can come to somebody and link them up with Almighty God so that suddenly they, they see not just what's around them, but they see vistas of eternity. Why is it that we've got such a fantastic message which is powerful, the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes and the church can't do anything without money? And again, I'm speaking generally, aren't I? And that's dangerous. Because it's not universally true. And I say, why don't you do something about this, God? Why have you allowed even your people to be trapped in this? Has he ordained it for scourging? Has he ordained it to bring us to our knees? 
So we turn back and say, the righteous shall live by faith. We will live by faith. And so, Habakkuk said, I will take my watch, stand on the watch post. I haven't done this for 20 years. That wasn't there then. I will wait for God. Where are you, God? What will you say? Psalm 73, incidentally, the man with his troubles goes into the sanctuary, and I think John Lyons asked some of you recently where your sanctuary was. Do you have a sanctuary? Do you expect to hear God? Even if it's not what you want to hear, do you expect God to speak to you? Did you come here this morning expecting him to speak to you? Well, Habakkuk went into his watchtower to wait for God. And then God spoke. Here's the vision he says, write it down. I feel a bit conspicuous up here now, so I'm going to come down again. Here's the vision he said. Write it down, make it plain on tablets so that those who read it can run with the news. Like messengers that come with good news. But the vision still awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end though, don't worry. It's not going to lie. It might seem slow to you, but wait for it. It's going to come. It's not going to delay. And then he speaks of the Chaldeans. Look, his soul is puffed up. It isn't upright within him. For the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, my version has wine, but it could be wealth. Moreover, wealth is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as the place of the dead. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So this is the Chaldeans. And then there's an oracle of judgment. Woe to him who heaps up what isn't his own. Your debtors will suddenly arise. Because you plundered many nations, the remnants of the people shall plunder you. Now he's speaking of the Chaldeans, okay? Woe to him who gets evil gain from his house to set his nest on high. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, isn't it from the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? What does Psalm 127 say? Except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain who build it. It is vain to rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Because, says the Lord, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And though I've ordained a rod to chasten my people, 
they themselves shall be chastened and judged. In this little book, Habakkuk begins by complaining to God. He ends up trembling at the knees because of what he has seen, because of what he's heard. Yes, his own nation is sinful and must be and must be reproved. You can see it now. He didn't like it that the Chaldeans should be used, but now he realizes that they're sinful, but his own nation was sinful too. The Chaldeans are God's scourge, but they themselves will be scourged by God because they worshipped their own might. In actual fact, their empire lasted a very short time. It's only 30 or 40 years before the Medes and the Persians, who were further north than them, grew in strength and overcame them. So Habakkuk, who began looking at the community around him, and then had his eyes lifted up to see the nations around him, now has his eyes lifted up again and saying, the rule of God is bigger and vaster than you understand. And God doesn't work. He works in the small ways because he works in your life and you know that. But God works on a cosmic scale. And the kingdom of God is not narrowed down to where we worship, is it? The kingdom of God is the rule across his cosmos. And that includes the spiritual realms as well as the material realms. And God works out his purpose so that the rule of God will be prospered in a way that we can't see from our narrow perspective. And we'll never understand why he used the Chaldeans. (laughs) I wonder whether God is using our financial straits as a rod to reprove us or as a Chaldean to whip us. I really do. I wonder, I dare not prophesy, but I can read Revelation and in verse eight, chapter 18 of Revelation we read this, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Who's he talking about? He's talking about a new Babylon. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality in this new Babylon and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, great city, you mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. But what will be the consequences? What is is he talking about here? Well, the merchants of the earth 
weep and mourn for her. Since nobody buys their cargo anymore, the cargoes of gold and silver and jewels and stuff. There's a long list. Iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and wheat and sheep and slaves, human souls, it says. The merchants who gained great wealth from her will stand far off in fear and torment, weeping and mourning aloud. And all shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all who trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of this new Babylon's burning. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying, Alas for that great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth and a single hour she's been laid waste. Now, I'm not pretending to understand all of Revelation. But what really strikes me about that passage in chapter 18 is that these people have put their whole trust in wealth, in mammon, in riches, in trade, in their own prosperity, and not in God. And this is what they've got from this new Babylon. And it all came crashing down. And I see times of austerity here. I just don't know how I would feel if I was a Greek person. I'd be so angry with my former leaders. But I'd be so angry with the rest of Europe. And I'd be so hungry, probably. And I look across Europe and I see everybody's labouring to save a euro. And nobody's turning to their God, are they? Nobody's saying, forgive us, God, because we put our trust in uncertain riches. Forgive us, God, because we put all our hope in things which will never save us. These are just like gods covered with silver and gold. And we put our whole hope in them. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I fear that things could get worse. And if they don't, I shall say, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. So I question whether these things are a scourge, especially to bring us, God's people, back. Out of, come out of her, my people. Don't put your trust in the things they put their trust in. Put your hope back in God. Now, when Habakkuk saw this, I've learned, I've heard the report of you and your work, Lord. Your work I fear. So, Lord, in the midst of the years, revive it. And then he goes into a long list which is sort of, he's remembering the past. He's remembering how God brought them up out of Egypt. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, He remembers how in those days they were filled with praise. The earth was filled with the praise. The brightness was like light. There was a a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. The earth shook and the eternal mountains seemed to be scattered. The, The tents of Kudshen and Midian trembled to see the approach of the people of God being redeemed out of Egypt. Um... 
The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And was your wrath against the rivers or against the seas, Lord, when you opened up the sea and then later opened up the Jordan? Was it against them? No, Lord, because you were working in salvation power, he's saying. You stripped the sheath from your bow and you called for many arrows. You, in fact, set us free. You emancipated us. You liberated us. You set us up as your people, God. I remember that. I remember when Joshua was, was fighting in the army and the, and the sun stood still in the sky and there was a glorious victory. I remember these things, Lord. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation for the people of your people. Lord God, you are awesome. In your wrath, now remember mercy, Lord God. And when he remembers these things, he says, my body trembles. Just now he was complaining, or a few weeks ago he was complaining, and now he says, my body trembles and my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me because you are so awesome. So I can put my hope in you and I must stop complaining. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Yes, we deserve our chastisement, but you have said they will also be chastised. So I will wait and trust you through the hard times and the pains and the justice of your actions amongst us. Yes, Lord, I will. And then we've got a song which you all know, probably. Having begun with complaints, it's quite amazing really. Because he's looking to the devastation which is going to follow from the, Chalde the, the Chaldeans' invasion, which took place perhaps 20 years later. He sees the devastated land. Even though the fig tree shouldn't blossom or there'd be any fruit on the vine, even though the produce of the olive fails and the fields don't yield any fruit, and the flock be cut off from the fold. No herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, the I am, the Lord over all, who knows what he's doing when I have no idea how it works. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation, because God the Lord is my strength. If anything's to make my feet dance like deer on the mountains, it's him. He's my strength. Now I hope I'm wrong and we don't go through rugged times. But lots of people already are. And if they hit us, would we be able to look up and say, my hope is in you, God. The devastation of my dreams or our dreams around us. But my hope is in you. Because you're the only one who can make my feet dance. And you're the only one who can sustain me. And would we do that as a church? We've already said that financially we're not as brilliant as we thought we were. We've already admitted that perhaps we were trusting to our own resources. 
more than we were trusting to God. Do you think we could come out from among those false perceptions of what really resources a people and what really makes an upright and what really makes the gospel work? And do you think we could come back really to trusting God together? Whatever happens, whether you get your answer for the prayers of how this church should look or not, <laughs> and that's the smallest thing amongst everything else, isn't it? Actually. <laughs>